0: My name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This week marking the release of a new Byline Times book. It's called Woke Law, Boris Johnson's Culture War and Other Stories. And it brings together some of the finest writing from the Byline Times. We'll be hearing from the book's editor, Hardeep Matharu, and Byline Times co-founder, Peter Dukes. First, just a reminder that the Byline Times doesn't have a traditional proprietor pulling our strings. There are no advertisers or corporate backers telling us what to say. Our journalism is funded by people like you, who take out a subscription to the monthly Byline Times newspaper. Those subscriptions help support Byline TV, this podcast, and our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com, which is where you'll find details of how to subscribe. That's at bylinetimes.com. Now, if you're a regular reader of the Byline Times, you won't need me to tell you how much great writing appears in its pages. And now the highlights of the first couple of years have been brought together in a book called Woke Law, Boris Johnson's Culture War and Other Stories. There are some fine writers on board. Bonnie Greer, Musa Akwanga, Peter Oborn, Jake Arnott, Penny Pepper, Jonathan Portes, Shamia Sani, Selena Godden, Misha Glennie, to name just a few, as well as my Byline Times colleagues, Sean Norris, Stephen Colgrave, Nafiz Ahmed, Sam Bright and Otto English. It's a wide-ranging collection, covering Trump's America and Putin's Russia. But as you might expect, themes of British exceptionalism, identity, our handling of COVID-19, Brexit and the culture wars feature prominently I brought together Byline Times editor Hadeep Matharu, who edited the book, and Byline Times executive editor Peter Dukes, where I asked, did the idea of woke law come from?
1: Well, it came for a joint essay that Hadeep and I wrote, uh, the title anyway, the book. We're always going to do the best long reads of Byline Times. I think it was originally called What the Papers Don't Say. But then about two years into publication of Byline Times, Hadeep and I wrote an essay on Boris Johnson's culture wars. And Hadeep, you came up with this wonderful term, because I was talking about folklore, and you came up with this wonderful term, woke-law, didn't you?
2: Yes, we were trying to explore how the culture wars were really sort of harnessing myths And how Boris Johnson is the ultimate myth myth maker, but also Britain's myths and how they have painted an inaccurate picture of Britain and how in the past couple of years that has really come to light and we've started questioning some of these things. But we always wanted to do a Byline Times book. And that's because byline Times' investigative mission is a wide one, you know, so we're investigative in everything we do. So obviously, we're known for our investigative journalism and our breaking news and our news site, fantastic exposures of scandals such as PPE contracts, Russian interference, in the early days looking at Cambridge Analytica. But we're also investigative in the sense that we want to look at ourselves and what's happening in society and why and some of the structural shifts that are going on. And so two years before the Colston statue came down in Bristol, we were already writing about the legacy of empire and its relevance and history and how Britain is seen. So buying Times is very much a beautiful collaboration of two investigative spirits, one which is, as we say, heroic old school investigative journalism, which aims to expose corruption and highlight injustice. And then we have a whole other stream of work, which feeds into the first one, which is about taking almost a deeper, more philosophical, more sociological look at what is going on. And I think the success of the Byline Times as a whole is because it is that beautiful collaboration. And so we had this wealth of material from just the first year and a half of stories that weren't going to date. They are actually about things that were quite timeless, asking questions of ourselves, of Britain, of the world. And it was really key to us to bring them into a book where people can sit at their leisure. I mean, people seem to sit at their leisure and read our print edition like that as well because there's so much packed in. But I hope that people will not only, as I say in the introduction, use the book as a space to reflect, but also as a call to action. Byline Times is both of those things. And so we're just really thrilled to be able to do that, to have a product in a way that is both... So traditionally investigative and very reflective and is asking questions all the time of all of us.
0: The subtitle of the book is Boris Johnson's Culture War and Other Stories. By calling the book Woke Law, you're setting yourself up in opposition, I think, to the prevailing orthodoxy, certainly of the mainstream press and of Boris Johnson himself. Tell me about the, the evolution of that way of thinking.
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting in that it's called woke law, which was always the concept of how wokeness is being warped or has been warped by this government. So the law, sort of the woke law, is the mythic nature of what Britain supposedly is and how that's threatened by supposed wokeness. And looking at how that has been used as a very real tool to further the Johnson administration's agenda
1: yeah it predates johnson but the basic premise is that if you can't succeed on truth if you can't uh, change the economy or make brexit work what you do is distract with symbolic victories and symbolic battles and so obviously you know wokeness is the new battle the government drew its line i think rather abortively at the beginning of 2020 after johnson had been re-elected properly with the majority they decided brexit was chaos we had coronavirus, so that was still lurking. And so what you do is you launch a misty battle against archetypes and stereotypes with you know, woke what social justice warriors, cultural Marxists. And it's all a distraction, You know, an important distraction, because culture is very important to people. But while the economy is crumbling, you can't get imports or exports, people are locked out. You have this vast chimera. You have this sort of shadow play of mythic forces to distract us all. But this predates Johnson. If I look back, actually, Hadi P goes over two years of our coverage, mm. from really our first ever edition in March 2019 to March 2021. And one of the first pieces is by Caroline Orr, a great American writer and a researcher, about the multi million dollar anti Muslim propaganda industry. So, demonizing Muslims and Islam has been quite a long, you know, for at least a decade. And then we go on to a piece by Hadeep about the story of Brexit, story of empire, why her parents with a Punjabi immigrant background voted for Brexit. And so we have empire, we have Islamophobia, we have all these tropes, well, they're bigger than tropes, they are shadow plays, they are sort of exotic, fictional confabulations on the horizon, which people do fight over. But they're often used, and I think that's the whole point. We use the word woke law to show this is completely constructed. They're creating a straw man of wokeness and then tearing it down. It's more like Don Quixote tilting at windmills, thinking windmills are giants. But you do have to analyse it. I think that's Hardeep's whole point, that a great essay by her about the soft fascism within, how we are all lured into this idea when we feel victimised of power. That, you know, as, as journalists, you have to report from the front line, of coronavirus crisis front line of ukraine at the moment but also the front line of the emotions and the soul especially in the information age where you know a lot of the battles we're having over truth non-truth about prejudice or non-prejudice is a psychic battle and it happens late at night on your phone on your instagram or on your facebook and they are important to bunt them i think the word woke law is Just signalling that this is a fictional construct, Woke Law, one very important to the government, one I think which we track over those two years, was a major part of their agenda because people need narratives. People need myths, the classic myths of Christianity, of liberal progress or socialist progress. They've kind of gone. And in their absence, we get these strange new deformed myths like QAnon, which is the world's run by lizards or pedophiles or something like that, because humans love these big narratives.
2: But the book itself isn't confined to just culture war stories. The reason we changed the name, because it was originally called What the Papers Don't Say, which is the Byline Times' tagline, and I would say a you know, deeply held mission that we still look at every single day, we just felt we needed something that was a bit more of the zeitgeist, because obviously we'd like to publish more of these books. You know, there'll be another Byline Times book uh, of the next two years. And so we thought rather than calling it the sort of tagline we're all known for, we thought we'd try to, yeah, do something a bit different. The content is actually quite wide. So they're all sort of timeless stories and articles, but they go from sort of Englishness and what that is to climate change. We look at cities, we look at the Queen, two articles about Ukraine. We look at the coronavirus, of course, we look at Russia and hybrid warfare, we look at eugenics. And we also look at the Bullingdon Club and Boris Johnson and all sorts of things about diversity and race the here and abroad. So it's, it's quite a range of topics that is covered. It's not just about the culture wars. But we thought in the last two years for us, and it has been really important for Byline Times to call out and expose these culture wars. We just thought that would be something distinctive that we could quite confidently do, especially given the stories that we had to tell in this book.
1: Hardy makes a point. There is actually a theme because, you know, it does cover, we have the bookmarks like, you know, the attack at Christchurch. To the election of Boris Johnson, the insurrection, and its bookmark is very much drilling down on contemporary events with more reflective essays. And it closes fascinatingly on Hadeep's story of losing two uncles in India to the coronavirus. And I think if there's a theme, you know, you pick up this whole two essays on the BBC by Patrick Howes, a former producer and reporter for the BBC. It is about the rise of populism and the problems. Of institutions like the BBC and sort of classic more liberal democratic institutions to deal with this global phenomenon of populism. And people mistake that. Populism isn't being popular. You know, New Labour was popular, Clinton was technically popular. It's about driving division against activating the base, ignoring truth, evidence, and actually ignoring the idea of reconciliation and the state or our institutions a way of reconciling conflict of amping up conflict. One of the opening stories is by great Otto English, a regular writer about how Brexit caused him never to speak to an old friend of his who then discovered had died. You know, they just end up arguing about things like that. And a lot about Englishness myself, I write about, can we reclaim Englishness? Can I as an Armenian Welsh Londoner reclaim Englishness, but John Denham about, you know, why a lot of the problems with Brexit, the problems of the British state now are this, you know, the biggest country in the union is England. And it's the biggest country in the whole of Europe not to have a government. So they're quite specific things, you know, which cause these mythic battles. And we do try not to just engage in culture wars because culture wars are opinions about opinions. To provide some facts, like back to that original essay, 200 million dollars was pumped into the islamophobia industry by a caroline ors piece so you know we, we like to keep the receipts there are many and i like them many magazines many sites which discuss culture which discuss opinion but we try to be empirical those opinions that culture comes from a material based from somewhere real from real things happening from reportage and proper factual driven investigative searches
0: how do you answer that question about your own Englishness, Peter, given your background, as you say, in Armenia, this is my England and yours, you say? Because the idea of Englishness, the idea of Britishness, are both contentious.
1: I think the thing for me was I'd spent most of my life denying I was English. I'm only a quarter of Armenian, but I'd revel in that. My adopted brother was half Bayesian. And I kind of revel in my otherness. And to be fair to the English, they liked it too. I mean, some racist abuse, no doubt. But there was a sense that the English liked outsiders, were a bit exotic and a bit more exciting. But then I looked at my mother, adopted. She was the daughter of an Armenian refugee fleeing the genocide after World War One, and she was deeply English. She didn't look at all English. You know, she looked hooked nose, very dark skin, black hair. But she loved Vaughan Williams, she loved the Archers, she cooked a Sunday roast that tasted of boiled fog because she cooked it too long in the pressure cooker. And what I realised is because of this repressed nature of Englishness that has expresses itself through the kind of, you know, the carapace of Britishness, that there are some very lovely sides to English. Orwell writes about Englishness which only exhibit themselves because they're repressed and the ugly side like... English Laws for English Votes, David Cameron playing that game, or in the English football team, when it plays abroad, as you know well yourself, Adrian. And I just think that's a larger story, isn't it, Hadeep? Not just about empire, because we're no longer an empire, but the post-imperial state, which we've kind of inherited, which is one of our big themes, may no longer be fit for purpose, and it's up for us to inhabit the identities we have. So English is to me, is like. Hopefully, Scottish have made Scottishness not an ethnic identity, but a civic one. If I decide to speak in this very English accent I've got, listen
0: to the Archers, listen to Vaughan Williams, can I not be English? For many people, the idea of Britishness is a relatively easy one to buy into. But I think many people of migrant heritage or migrants see English as a much more strictly nationalist identity, one that you are born into.
1: Well, Hadeep can explain more about that, Hadeep, isn't it? Because it's easier also for your family coming from Kenya and India to be British, isn't it, rather than English?
2: Yes, definitely. That's one of the themes explored in many different articles in this book. Obviously, identity and Britishness and England, how these things relate to each other and outsiders and immigrants. Yeah, I think that is true. I mean, I feel very... British, and my parents feel very British, but haven't really considered the concept of whether we're English. And I think, as Adrian said, there is a feeling that that's not an identity that me or many other immigrant communities naturally have an affinity to. And again, as Peter says, it's about looking at why that is, you know, what is it about the British state and and the English state, which actually sits right at the heart of it, but actually isn't really ever discussed or explored or sort of celebrated in and of itself. What is it that is there to relate to or not? And Britishness and British identity, is it seems more and more important, or it always has been important. And now those discussions are taking place about sort of who feels British and who doesn't. And I think this is what really worries me about what's been happening in recent weeks and months in terms of this government. Before all the chaos and the scandal of the Downing Street parties, or in and amongst it, we've had a lot of legislation that's been attempted to be passed by Parliament, which looks at these questions, the Nationality and Borders Bill, the right to rescind citizenship without notice. Again, more allegations of Islamophobia within the Conservative Party. There is a real sort of strand terror of who's British and who's not. That's always been the case, let alone who's English and who's not. These things have always been the case, who's in, who's out. And I think, again, coming back to this idea of the woke wars and woke law at the heart of Boris Johnson's approach, it's us and them, it's the divide and rule, it's finding issues that you can whip people up with and turning them against each other, as opposed to actually improving people's lives. We're so lucky, we live in relative peace in this country, in harmony. But what really interests me is why it's such a salient issue, why this issue of identity and belonging is such a potent one to whip people up with.
0: You and I have spoken off mic, as it were, hard deep, about the ethnic diversity of the current cabinet. You've got a Home Secretary, Priti Patel, you've got Sajid Javid, the Health Secretary, and you've got the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, who are all of non English heritage. And I know Musa Akwanga has written an article about the dangers of Priti Patel's racial gatekeeping. It is, I think, fascinating that, that at this moment, when we do have the most ethnically diverse cabinet that we've ever had, that these questions of national identity are to the fore in a way that they've never been during my lifetime.
2: And I think it's almost having people in positions in the cabinet, you know, the highest positions in the country, in the government. It's sort of, in a strange way, it has prompted discussions because it's prompted some people to say, well, Britain's made a lot of progress because how can we explain the fact that Priti Patel and Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid, all people of immigrant descent, and they have these positions? How else can we explain that? but say it's down to progress. And there are others who say, well, no, that's not the full picture. The story doesn't end there. And I think that's what the presence of these these people has, has generated a debate, which has also been weaponized through the culture wars. But it is really interesting. And I think two things are often getting confused. People can be individuals, and they are. You know, people of color should be and should have the right to be seen as individuals and be just as individuals with their own narratives and their own stories and how they want to see themselves and present that to the world and their own life experience, just as much as anyone else. That is absolutely correct. What is also correct is those individuals are individual. And therefore, how can they ever profess to know what? every person of migrant heritage has faced. How can they ever know the different forms of discrimination or race or otherwise that people have faced? So these individuals, while they absolutely are individuals and shouldn't be, as Priti Patel has said, pressured to be a certain type of minority, it's for that very reason that we can't just hold them up and say, well, because of them, there are no structural issues that we should be looking at. There is nothing more to see here. We've kind of gone colorblind. And I think both of those things are true, but they're often muddied. I think the other point as well, which has come up in this area over the Johnson administration, is obviously the issue of race and ethnic disparities. We had this Sewell report last year that was condemned across the board by a range of experts, which was a massive shift. You know, instead of saying we'd finally got to a point in Britain where it was acknowledged that there are institutional factors, structural elements to the discrimination faced by different groups we suddenly move to it's it's not about those structural factors which are to do with how people are perceived because of their race it's actually cultural it's about how these people decide to live their lives and the households they're being brought up in and what kind of food they choose to eat again it was really interesting instead of structural issue it becomes individualized and heavily imbued with culture and cultural considerations And both of these things have taken place under Johnson, who was on one hand considered a liberal sort of London mayor, uh, London's most multicultural city, one of them in the world. And also yet he's the man who's used the dog whistles of race and othering frequently when he's needed it. So there's lots of things going hand in hand. And it will be interesting to see if Rishi Sunak becomes prime minister, how those conversations develop. You know, are, in Britain, are we ready to start having a really intellectually rigorous and open conversation about race? I'd love to see it happen. But I fear that it may not.
0: And in relation to that, one thing that Byline Times in its various forms, including the podcast, has been very active about pursuing, is Britain's colonial legacy. I've done a really interesting interview with Corinne Fowler. She was the the historian who was doing work with the National Trust and whose work was effectively brought to a halt by a group of Conservative MPs objecting to the fact that she was seeking to explore the imperial background of National Trust properties. Stephen Colgrave, uh, colleague on Byline Times, writes about discovering his family's link with slavery.
1: And I remember, I think it's when Hadeep had first started working for the newspaper about two and a half years ago, maybe even three years ago. She was on a panel organised by Hacked Off after a talk by Lord Justice Leveson. Brian Leveson you know, had done the Leveson inquiry. And it was about what the papers don't say. And one thing she said that they never mention is the history of empire, British empire. And there was embarrassed silence at this room filled with all these luminaries, like she'd said something deeply inappropriate. And I realized, and the obviously been writing about it ever since, that my mother was born in 1926, the same year as the Queen, when the British Empire was at its height. Now it's all gone except for a few overseas territories. And it's like something which has happened and we haven't really talked about. Like it was a bit of an embarrassment either to lose it or to have it in the first place. And I do think there's the call, the political unconscious. The things you don't talk about are the ones that really come and haunt you. And we can see this, you know, obviously in Brexit, it was described as empire 2.0. Daniel Hannan with former Anglosphere, a new commonwealth with Canada, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, very weird things are gone on a lot of the brexiteers have imperial backgrounds coming from colonists in i don't know in zimbabwe south africa australia new zealand there is this myth this dream of this unresolved past we haven't really talked about and it's extraordinary change you know the biggest empire in the world within just about in our lifetimes and of course in the lifetime of our current monarch and i think a lot of these chickens are coming home to roost and we know that we cannot sweep the past under the carpet anymore. There's something about Brexit, there's something about Britain, which we haven't reconciled our change of status. Europe covered it up for a while. Blair did this thing, we'll be close to America, we'll be close to Europe, we have bridgehead. And now we're a bridge to nowhere because Biden's not enamored of Johnson. We've left the EU, we're on the margins when it comes to this crisis in Ukraine with Russia amassing 150,000 troops on the borders of Ukraine. Who are we? Where are we going? And more importantly, we'll never find out the answer to those two questions until we discover where we've been.
0: I find it fascinating, Hardeep, that we're, on Byline Times, very keen to discuss empire and address the legacy of empire. Elsewhere, this is partly why our tagline is what the papers don't say, it appears to me there's an attempt to suppress what we say about empire. It isn't simply ignored when it is raised, and I mentioned the example of Corinne Fowler and her work with the National Trust. It's clamped down on. It's like the the love or the hate that dare not speak its name.
2: Mm. What really always fascinated me, Adrian, when we first set up Byline Times, and that was around the time I first wrote about empire and my parents' story, was the silence. That silence has now moved, as you say, to suppression. So uh, for many, many years, there was absolutely not a conversation happening in Britain about its colonial history, about the British Empire about what it meant, about how the legacy of that uh, is lived every day around us. Even if we weren't people who come from directly from that legacy ourselves everyone who lives in Britain is shaped by it because it's, it's the water we all swim in. And I always found that extraordinary because growing up I was always aware of the British Empire. My dad grew up in British Kenya and my mother grew up in post-partition India. So it was just something I was always aware of. And I always found it fascinating. And I was always asked my parents these questions about, wow, you know, Britain was just in ruling other countries. Like, I just found it fascinating. And I always thought it was really, really interesting. And something that the country should be quite eager to discuss about itself because it's such a fascinating thing and it's so heavily molded who we are. But I found silence, which is what prompted me to write about why my parents voted to leave the EU along with more other immigrant families as well. It was a silence. But since that debate in the last couple of years has got going, as you say, it's now It's so charged with the notion that it's about wokeness, that the people who want to discuss, like Corin Fowler, Britain's past and see how you can see the legacy of it in Britain's buildings and country homes and on the streets and in the statues and in our institutions. Somehow that is to do with being woke. That is somehow some sort of ideological thing. And I think it's one of the most pernicious things that have been levelled against historians, public academics and journalists who are trying to have a very real conversation about it. And for me, it just shows, again, the level of debate that this country is at about looking at itself. And in these discussions, what has come up is how other countries have dealt with their past. Germany is often mentioned with regards to its Nazi legacy and what happened in the World Wars and how that country has attempted to come to terms with that history, how it's taught to pupils, how there's a living legacy of never forgetting the Holocaust and and all the victims of that. So other countries have a more mature discussion going on and have done for years. Whereas here, I often think that our foundations, they're so weak and sort of crumbling that it's almost like we can't bear, you know, any talk of empire and potentially the effects of that and what it says about us in a broader sense. We can't because it would just shake us to our core and we wouldn't be able to withstand it. And so, yeah, conversations often descend into, here's the good of empire and here's the bad of empire. But that is trying to impose a simplicity on something that is completely complicated. It's nuanced and it's complex. And it's something I live with every day. You know, I I don't think empire was right. I would literally not be here, alive or in this country if it wasn't for empire. So I live with that contradiction all the time. And I just think it's an interesting one that Britain can't confront a level that transcends individuals and people who are personally affected by it.
0: To tie these themes together of what the papers don't say and of wokeness and the power of the established press, I remember when I first left the BBC, having worked there on a breakfast show on local radio and worked on a politics show for the BBC in 2006, I set off to become a citizen journalist. And there was a great belief at that time that bloggers would point the way to a glorious future of free and independent journalism. Byline Times now is showing that that is possible with a different kind of model of journalism, funded by ordinary people, not funded by oligarchs, not funded by backers who want to use the power of the brand to exercise their political influence. But what's remarkable is that throughout the media revolution – The internet revolution is that the established press seem, if anything, to have grown their power and influence. It certainly doesn't seem to have waned in recent years.
1: That's a very interesting observation, Adrian. I think it's a very particular British observation. And a lot of it goes back to the deal done over Leveson, the Leveson inquiry after the phone hacking scandal and police bribe scandal and the dropping of it by Theresa May. We are ruled by a punditocracy. Prime Minister and his most senior lieutenant, Michael Gove, Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, really trained as journalists, both close to media oligarchs, the Mail and Murdoch in particular. So we have a narrow clique of people running this country on a basis of information warfare. Let's be honest. I mean, this is effectively Rupert Murdoch, Paul Dacre, and the Barclay remaining brother. And it's just going, if you don't do what we say, we'll dub you in and you'll lose the next election. So they get, you know, the online harms bill excludes these newspapers from harmful comment. They get subsidies during coronavirus. They get tax relief on VAT. On their online publications, so uh, it's a very interesting observation you know, about bloggers. I mean, in a way, they've been disastrous. If you think about coronavirus misinformation, influence operations during the, you know, during the um, U.S. elections or Brexit operations, it's all these weird Facebook posts or startup websites full of misinformation. But. They're really copying the model of Fleet Street and newspaper parties. Right back in World War One, they were trying to. You know, they became cabinet ministers in World War One, Northcliffe and Beaverbrook. So there's a long tradition of journalism being used as a weapon by particularly rich individuals to get their own way, or governments as a form of propaganda, or enemy governments as a form. Of propaganda. I think the difference is, and you know, you had your blogging moment, I had my blogging moment, byline.com started up crowdfunding individual journalists, is to create something bigger, a masthead, a sense of overall sort of principles, to have standards, not just of accuracy and also legal accountability and doing quite legally challenging things, but genuine, you know, try to represent the nation as it is, not what a few public school educated editors in the, you know, nominally existing Fleet Street believe in, who go to maybe they go to lockdown, breaking parties at number 10. There's certainly a revolving door between the higher echelons of government and the senior echelons of the press. So it is part of the story. I think Hardy feels this even more powerfully for me, and she didn't sit in court for eight months at the old Bailey, uh, having sort of dozen journalists under indictment, you know, investigated for phone hacking is that, I think Peter Oborn's also said this, both Hardeep and Peter Oborn, very different backgrounds. Hardeep, you know, came from local journalism, her background, Peter Oborn, senior political correspondent for the Mail and the Telegraph. They both say the Brit- biggest threat to free speech in Britain is the press. But that's very unique. I don't think you'd say the same in America. You would say in the same America about TV, yeah, surely, with Fox News, but not the press. I don't think you'd say the same in Germany. I don't think you'd say the same in France. It's a very, very peculiar condition where our government has elevated our press, who simultaneously, I mean the right-wing press, hold a gun to their heads.
0: Peter Jukes with Hadeep Matharu. Woke Law, Boris Johnson's Culture War and Other Stories is published by Unbound on March the 17th and can be pre-ordered online now. £20 for the paperback and £10 for the e-edition. Before we go, I just want to say thank you to Harvey White, who does so much of the production legwork behind the scenes and to everyone who retweets or shares news of the podcast on social media. People like Judith Walsh and Rob Wilson. We don't have a marketing budget, so everything you can do to spread the word really does help. This podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already done so, thank you. Thanks very much indeed for listening as well. I'm Adrian Goldberg. See you next time.